It's good to be reminded of our blessed hope, uh, as Peter um, directs us to. If you will, please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter as we continue our series in 1 Peter entitled, A Living Hope, A Living Hope. 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to read verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 13, down to verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 3. And let me say this just off the bat. Um, there is so much, uh, when you sort of like take off a huge chunk of a text that's so rich like this, there are a few things that I'm not going to uh, have an opportunity to mention, so I'm sorry about that, but if you see something in this text and you're like, hey, Pastor Dennis, do you, uh, can you help, um, help me understand this? And I would say, absolutely, let's sit down and kind of go through it, and I'll be happy to. But I just want to focus on one theme, one thing that I want to press on our hearts that I think is so needful uh, for our hearts. And it's found here in uh, 1 Peter chapter 13, chapter 1, verse 13 down to 2, 3. So with that said, uh, let's read God's holy and inspired word. Peter says, Therefore, preparing your mind for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of, G of Christ like that of the lamb without blemish or spot. He has foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Four, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Well, all flesh is like grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. 
the grass will wither and the flower will fade. But the word of the Lord will endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that it is spiritual food for our needy souls. Thank you for the people that you have drawn here to hear your word and to sing and to read the scriptures. May you bless their hearts. May you pour into them, O Lord. May the words that I say not be hindered by my own lack of wisdom or my own sinfulness. But instead, may you rule and overrule that the words that are heard are spiritual food that your people can feast off and learn. Thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Lastly, last week, if you remember, we started by talking about the fact that you and I are elect exiles. And what does it mean to be an elect exile? It means that we are chosen by God. That's the elect. But we are also exiles, meaning we are rejected by the world. That's our reality. We are chosen by God, but we are rejected by the world. And one of the things that we said from the very beginning is that as elect exiles, we suffer trials and testings and tribulations. Everyone inside of here today is suffering either currently in the past or will suffer from some kind of trials or testing or tribulation. And we asked ourselves the question, when you suffer trials, testings, and tribulations, Peter calls it a fire. He calls it a furnace. When you pass through that furnace, what will sustain you? Peter said the very thing that will sustain you is something that God does to you, which is you are born again. And what does it mean for you to be born again? It means you are given a new nature. There's something about your nature that's different. There's something about you that's different. And because there's something about you that's different, something about your nature that's different, the Word of God says you should suffer differently. You shouldn't suffer like someone who hasn't been born again. That your suffering should look differently. Your suffering is of a different character and a different quality. Why is that the case? Because you've been born again. And people that have been born again should look and suffer differently from anyone else and everyone else in the world. That's what Peter tells us. And Peter also indicates this. That the quality of your faith, what you are trusting in and resting in, if it's not in Jesus Christ, if it's not about the fact that you've been born again, Peter says it will burn up in the fire. It will. If you're trusting in money, if you're trusting in your talent, if you're trusting in your looks, if you're trusting in your pedigree, if that is the basis for what you are trusting in when you go through these trials, the word of God says when you pass through that fire, and brothers and sisters, you will. You will. You will pass through that fire. And when you pass through that fire, will you be sustained by God? Will you be sustained by the fact that you've been born again to a living hope and an inheritance that will not perish? That's what Peter talked about today. And that's supposed to be an encouragement to us 
to those of us that have been born again. But if you came inside and you're like, hey, I don't know if I'm born again or not, then this is your opportunity to trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you because that is the sustaining grace in your life. That will be ultimately the sustaining grace in your life. Now today, Peter moves on, and in verse number 13, he starts a new phase of the letter. Notice in verse number 13, he says, therefore. Now we all have been taught that whenever we see a therefore, we have to know what it's therefore, right? Everybody knows that. Well, I'd like to add a new paradigm to your thinking. Whenever you see a therefore, Ask yourself the question, what am I being asked to do? You see, right after or right before therefore, there's what we call the indicative, who you are in Christ. You've been born again unto a living hope. That's your status before God, if indeed you have been born again by a living hope. The therefore tells us what you are now required and ask of you. We have learned from uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, what God has done for you. Now the question is, what does God require from you? And what God requires from each and every one of us inside you today is holiness. That's the essence of the next section in Peter. He's calling us to holiness. Now ask yourself the question, why is holiness important in the midst of trials? What's, what's the correlation, what's the relationship between holiness and trials? Here's the relationship between holiness and trials. Everyone, everyone that makes it through the fire, everyone that makes it through trials and tribulations, whether it's personal, whether it's family, whether it's in society, whatever it is, anyone that passes through the fire as pure gold, the word of God says they are holy people. They are people who love the Lord. These are holy people. Recently, I, I was um, looking and reading through a list of martyrs of the Christian faith. And two martyrs stuck out to me. One was William Tyndale. Now, most of you might not know who William Tyndale is. But if you have a Bible in your hand, it's because of William Tyndale. And right before William Tyndale died, he said that my mission in life, my goal in life, was to make sure that everyone that spoke English had a Bible in their hand. As I look out today, I see that fulfilled. Anyone that has a Bible in their hand is the result of the work of William Tyndale. And right before William Tyndale was killed, burned at the stake, he said that that was his desire, not fame, but to see God's people have the word of God in their hand. What sustained him in the midst of that? Holiness. Or consider the young lady, Mary, uh, Kayla Mueller. Some of you remember her from several years ago. Kayla was captured by ISIS and she was held. And when she had an opportunity to escape, she told the two young ladies that were with her, you all go and run and I'll stay here. And Kayla was later killed in an airstrike. What kept Kayla there and sent those young people, uh, those two young Afghan ladies away? Holiness. Holiness. She had a holy disposition, a holy character. Hear me today. 
holiness is what sustains us in the midst of trials. A very famous and well-known preacher, Robert Murray McShane. Some of you know him because of his Bible reading plan. And by the way, if you're looking for a Bible reading plan, his is fantastic. It's a little bit intense, but good for you. You should be reading the Word of God constantly, right? Robert McShane said, his people's greatest need, this is quote, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. That's my people's greatest need. Ask yourself the question, what is the greatest need of the people around you? The greatest need for the people around you today is your personal holiness. Holiness. That's my family's greatest need. That's your greatest need of me. It's holiness. And that's why Peter after he exclaims what Christ has done for you in the most glorious and majestic way, he says, now the greatest need you have is to pursue holiness. To pursue holiness. So for the next few moments, I want to ask two questions. Actually, I want to ask one question, then I want to point out uh, some facts or some things about Peter said in the text. The first is, what is holiness? And second, what are the marks of holiness? What is holiness and what are the marks of holiness? If holiness is your greatest need, it's, if it's the thing that people around you need, it's the thing that insulates you the most from suffering and trials. If that is what you need, then you need to know what it is, and then you need to know the marks of holiness. So let's begin. What is holiness? Peter tells us actually in verse number 16. Peter says, uh, actually, if you go back up, Peter says this in verse number 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in, your, in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, in verse 16, Peter is quoting a passage in Leviticus. And Peter is hearkening on one word in that passage, and it's the word kadosh. And the word kadosh in Hebrew is the word holiness, but the word is even more descriptive than that. The word literally means to cut off and separate, to cut off and separate. That's what the word holy means. It means to cut off and separate. You and I, there's a phrase that I grew up hearing, and the phrase is to be a cut above the rest. Anybody ever heard that statement? So-and-so is a cut above the rest. What it means to be a cut above the rest means that you are above or over everyone else in your class. That's what it means to be a cut above the rest. And that statement was taken from that Hebrew word, gadosh, meaning to cut off or to separate. And the point that Peter is making, and notice, it's so subtle. Our holiness is predicated or based on the fact that God himself is holy. In other words, God himself is transcendent. God himself is high above everything that we can think or hope for. When I was growing up in churches, I used to hear people say all the time, God is the big man upstairs. Anybody ever heard of that? People would call God the big man upstairs or my homeboy upstairs or big daddy. And I often said to myself, what are you talking about that God is big daddy? Is, is the big daddy God the God of Isaiah 6? The answer to that question is no. Hear me today, God is not the big daddy or the man upstairs or my homeboy who lives up north. That's not who God is. 
The vision of God in the Bible is so much grander and more beautiful than that. When Isaiah was in the temple, he said that he saw the Lord high and lifted up. He saw the Lord as a cut above the rest. He understood what he was looking at. He was looking at the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He was looking at the God who authored his life and his days. He was looking at the God to whom we should tremble and fear. Listen to me. What kind of God do you want? That's a fair question. What kind of God do you want? Do you want a buddy? Do you want someone you can hang out with? Do you want a God that, that's weak and impotent? Or do you want a God high and lifted up above everything else? A God that you can stare at and be in awe of? Do you want the kind of God that you could just be chummy with? Or the God that you can fear because he is holy and majestic and powerful? When Isaiah saw God high and lifted up, you know what he said? He said, woe is me for I am undone. Listen to me, the vision that he had of God at that time wasn't a jokey God, wasn't a puny God. It was a God who was to be feared, a God in all his glory and majesty. That's what he bowed down to. And so the whole concept of God being holy means that God is high and lifted up above everything else. And when you are suffering in the midst of trials, what do you need? You need that God. You need that God. You need that God who is powerful and mighty in the midst of trials. As some of you know, yesterday was 9-11. And one of the things that I do uh, leading up to 9-11 is I always go online and I watch um, some of the footage from 9-11. I listen to some of the recordings because I don't want to ever forget what happened 20 years ago. And, and ever since we had children, every time 9-11 comes up, we, we bring our children in and we talk to our children about it and we try to tell our children about the gravity of 9-11 and what had happened. And in some of the recordings, I've noticed recordings, I've noticed this throughout the years. In some of the recordings, you can hear people use a phrase often and variations of it. They would either say, they would say something like this. They would say, oh my God. Or they would say, oh, God. Or they would, something, they would say something like, God, no. There were these expressions of God in the midst of their suffering and their pain. Now, look, I'm not here to capitalize on their suffering and pain. I'm just telling you something that I observed. Over and over again, as buildings were falling, as the, as the gravity of what was happening struck some people, immediately they were saying, dear God, God, no. They were crying out to God. Why were they doing that? Because in the moment of their suffering, they needed a God who was high and lifted up. They didn't need a homeboy in the sky. They needed a God who was strong and mighty. Now, there are some of you inside here today, you're saying to yourself, well, Pastor Dennis, if God is strong and if God is mighty, why did he allow all of those people to die in 9-11? It's a question that I get often. And here's what I want to say about that. The holiness of God and the grace of God is manifested in two ways. And mark my words, you will find this to be true. The first is this. 
that, the, that God and his holiness and his grace, yes, often saves his people in the midst of strife and trials. He does. That's one aspect of how his character is revealed. But the second is this, that God often sustains his people in the midst of trials. He doesn't rescue them. He doesn't pull, always pull them from the fire. No, no, no. Scripture says he sustains them in the midst of that. And by sustaining, it doesn't always mean you are preserved. It means that sometimes you will be called to die, even in the midst of trials. We have a view of God where the only way God can be holy and righteous and powerful is if he saves everyone. That's not the teaching of Scripture. That might be how we feel. You might want that to be true, but the clear teaching of Scripture is this. God, yes, he does save. He does pull us out of the fire. But there are sometimes his grace is seen in the fact that he sustains you in the midst of suffering. And he doesn't deliver you. That's the kind of God that we have. And there are some of you that have been suffering for a long time and you've been crying out to God and you're saying, God, why don't you deliver me from this suffering? Why don't you help me in this suffering? And God is saying this, I am helping you. I am helping you by sustaining you. I'm helping you by providing you with what you need. That's what it means when we say God is holy. He's high and lifted up. He, he can protect you. Or he could sustain you. But it's still the same God. Now, what does that mean for you? See, because the text says that we ought to be holy as God is holy. If God is high and lifted up, if he is majestic, if he's high above all things, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you in the pew? It means this, that you should be seeking after God. You should be pursuing God. It means that God has laid you aside as holy, has cut you off to be holy. I remember um, when I was in seminary, we were poor. In fact, we were below poor. I don't know what we were. But I remember um, I would go to work, and I would, I would work all day, and then go to classes, and I'd come home, and my wife, my beautiful wife, she would have my daughter over, over here, Madison at the time, and she would be cutting out coupons. Everybody ever cut coupons? Amen for the coupon cutters, right? And she would, she would cut out all the coupons, and then she would put them off to the side, right? And it was, it was just such, I mean, she took it seriously, too. She would, like, go places and grab the, the books. But she was, she was a passionate coupon cutter. And one, one thing I noticed as she would cut these out, she would labor to cut these out, and she would take them and put them neatly over to one side, and then she would take all the other things and put them on the other side. What was she doing? See, she was cutting out the things that she needs so she can use them. You see what holiness is? Holiness is God cutting you, cutting you away from the sinfulness of this world, cutting you away from the mess of this world, cutting you away from the tragedy of this world so he can lay you aside to be used. That's what it means for you to be holy. It's not simply for you to obey rules. 
It's not simply for you to sit down and say, look at me. I'm sanctified. I'm holy. No, 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 no. You are set aside so you can be used by God. That's what it means to be holy. Now, what are the marks of holiness? And this is so important. Because so often, you know, I, we live in the South. And if you talk to any Southern person right around, they'll tell you they're a Christian. You know, I would go out and knock, to people, knock on people's door or I'd talk to people and I said, hey, are you a believer? And they'll say, of course I am. Why? Because you live in the South. And everyone that lives in the South is a Christian. Everyone in the South has, all, has made a profession of faith. Right? That's been my experience. But here's the deal. You can say that you're a Christian. You can say that you've made a profession of faith. But there are certain marks. There are certain marks of holiness. There are certain marks that a holy person need to have to show that they are true believers. And that's what Peter is dealing with here. So let's look at these marks. The first mark is this, that a person who's holy is wise. Is wise. Notice with me in verse number 13. Verse number 13, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Uh, if that's what you have in your Bible, that's a horrible translation. No, a better translation is if you have like something from the KJV that says, gird up the loins of your mind. Isn't that wonderful? That's such a good description. I love when the Word of God does that, right? Gird up the loins of your mind. What does it mean to gird up the loins of your mind? That's such an odd statement. Well, it's odd for us because we, we don't have uh, long flowing gowns. Well, some of the women do. But in Jesus' day, in the day that the Bible was written, if you were preparing to run or flee or escape, you would, and you wore a long flowing gown, you would take that gown up and you would stuff it in your waist belt and then you would run. You'd, you'd prepare to do that. You would do that in advance before you start running. And what Peter is saying here is that a holy person girds up the loins of their minds. In other words, the word for mind there is dia nous, two words joined together. Dia meaning through, nous meaning think. To gird up the loins of your mind, meaning that you're the person that thinks things through. That's what it means to be holy. That you don't do things flippantly. That you don't just run off and make wild decisions. But you actually think things through. And notice what he does. He not only says that um, a Christian is wise and thinks things through, but he says, and being sober-minded. What does he mean by being sober-minded? What is the opposite of being sober? Being drunk, right? That's the opposite of being sober. So literally he's saying, you need to think things through and stop being drunkards who have their minds clouded, right? Now look, don't pretend, there's some of us inside you, don't pretend like you've never drunk before, and don't pretend you've never been drunk before. You know who you shouldn't listen to? A drunk person. You know why? Because they don't make any sense. Now, they make sense to themselves, if you've ever heard a drunk person, right? They make perfect sense to themselves, but they don't make sense to anyone else around them. And let me say this, too. One of the things you don't allow a drunk person to do is things that are important. If you're on an airplane and your pilot comes across the intercom with slurred speech, you know what you need to do? Get off the airplane. 
right? The call to sober-mindedness is the call for you to think things through. One of the things about being holy is holy people are not hysterical. Holy people don't believe conspiracy theories. Holy people don't believe any wind of doctrine that comes their way. Holy people don't believe everything they see on the news. Holy people don't swallow things just because their favorite political person says it. That's not what holy people do. Holy people think through things. They're sober-minded. They don't act like drunkards. They think through things. You know, when I was growing up and I started telling people I was a Christian, everyone said, well, Dennis, what are you doing? Christians aren't thinkers. You're wasting your life. You're wasting your life being a pastor. All you have to do is get up there and depend on the Spirit. They don't know anything. Christians are called to use their mind. In fact, the basis of Christianity is that we think through things. We think through what the gospel is. We think about what sanctification is. Anyone who tells you that a Christian doesn't think, point them to 1 Peter 1.13. We're called to gird up the loins of our minds, and we're called to think like sober-minded people, not as hysterical people. That's one of the core virtues of the Christian faith. The next is this. Notice Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. In other words, think soberly, think rightly. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. What is the second distinguishing mark of a Christian? In terms of holiness, the second is this. Their conduct is ruled by God and not by their passions. Their conduct is ruled by God and not by their passions. And here, the translation is conformed to your passions. In other words, that you are controlled and shaped by your desires. And by the way, the desire doesn't have to be bad. It could be a good desire that you pursue inordinately. A few years ago, I read a story about a Ukrainian woman. She's called the Ukrainian Barbie. And here's a young lady in her desire to look presentable and good to the world. Here's a young lady that spent countless hours, countless money, engaged in many surgeries to look like Barbie. Right? That's her desire. You know, all of us, to some degree or another, we are pursuing to be like someone. We are. Whether you realize it or not, there's a vision of who you think the person that you should follow looks like, the vision of who you think you should be, and you have that fixed in your head, and you strive after that. Whether it's just being a nice person whether that's being a, a wealthy person, whatever it is, you have this vision in your mind that you are pursuing after. That might not necessarily be bad, but it becomes inordinate when you pursue it at the absence of pursuing God. Remember, your conduct, your conduct, the way you live, should be more like Christ and pursuing after Christ than anything else. Notice the third one. The third one, drop down to verse number 22, because I found this to be very interesting. 
In verse number 22, Peter says that we are called to love. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from the heart. What is he saying here? One of the core aspects of being holy is that you love from the heart and your love is not inherently self-serving. That your desire is to love from the heart. In 1 Peter 4, 8, Peter says this, that love covers the multitude of sins. What does it mean to love from your heart? It means that you love in such a way to bring reconciliation in your relationships. That each and every one of us inside here today our love should be to pursue people to bring reconciliation. In other words, we love people for their good. We love people in such a way that we are a blessing to them. That's what it means to love from a pure heart. It's not about you, and you don't do it selfishly. It's only for the good of the other person. I'll end with this one. Notice with me in chapter 2, at the very beginning, Peter says this. And this is the final distinguishing mark that I want to give you today. There's many more. Um, you could look at this passage and find them. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the spiritual milk that by it you may be able to grow up in salvation. What's the point that Peter is making here? Peter is making the point that one of the, one of the aspects of being holy is that you're driven more by God's word than anything else. Um, many years ago, a friend of mine invited me to, um, to uh, it was Christmas, and they invited me to be with their family, and their family took out and started playing Monopoly. And, you know, I thought I knew Monopoly until I played with this family. <laughs> if you were to ask me, Dennis, do you know how to play Monopoly? I'd say, yes, of course, I've read the rules. But when I went to their house, I realized that they played Monopoly by house rules. Anybody have house rules when you play Monopoly? Yeah, there's several of you. They had house rules for Monopoly. And you know what I realized? House rule Monopoly is very different from actual Monopoly. And you know, when they were playing, I was completely lost. And I, I played along, I lost all my money very quickly. I was kicked out of the game, and I just sat there and marveled. Now, here's why I make that point, because this is the point that Peter is making, and please, you all don't miss this. There are many of us inside here today that are playing by house rules. By your house rules, by the house rules of your, where you grew up, by the house rules of the society around you, by the house rules of the Internet, many of you are living your life by house rules instead of the rule of the Word of God. What governs your life? What governs your life? Peter says that if you are to be holy, you need to desire the rules of the word of God and what the word of God says. Because too many of us as Christians live our Christian lives by house rules and not by the rule of the word of God. And all of a sudden, the house rules become the actual rules because we've moved too far away from the pure milk, what the word of God says. What rule is governing your life? Now, here's the big takeaway. The big takeaway is this. C.S. Lewis once wrote, how little people know who think that holiness is dull 
When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. Hear me today. Why, why am I talking about holiness? Well, because Peter is talking about it, but also holiness is supposed to be attractive. It really is. Do you know why more people that have ever lived have followed Jesus than anyone else? Because of his holiness. I mentioned this before. I had a friend who was an unbeliever, and he said, why would I waste my time reading the Bible and learning about Jesus Christ? And I told him, are you kidding me? There are more people who have read about Jesus, followed Jesus, and lived uh, Jesus' life than have ever lived. And you won't take the time to read about him and get to know who he is? I dare say you're the fool. The reason why people will always believe and trust in Jesus Christ and find him irresistible is because he was holy. And one of the ways we will win this culture back for Christ is with your holiness. That's what this culture needs. That's what we need. That's what your spouse needs, your children need, your parents need. They need you to be holy, holy. Let's go to our Lord for prayer. Father, holiness is certainly a desperate need for us, your people, because it is holiness that sustains us in the midst of trials and testings and tribulations. But holiness also is that character and quality that is irresistible in the world. Help us to know and understand what holiness is, but help us to have those marks of holiness. Lord, we are made holy, yes, by you, not by works that we have done, but yet there is a call to be holy. Lord, that is the great mystery of our faith, that the work that you have done, we participate in it. Give us the wisdom to know how to do that well. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.